Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Economics. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Gregory Worden, author of The Foundations of Antitrust, Events, Ideas, and Doctrines, published in 2020 by Carolina Academic Press. Few revolutions in economics have been as undercovered as the emergence and development of competition theory and policymaking. Threats to break up the tech giants or restrain Russian gas pipelines make headlines. Academic lawyers churn out textbooks and 130 years of precedent and practicing lawyers test its limits. What has been missing is a modern, general, legislative and intellectual history of how and why lawyers, economists and politicians decided they needed to step in and correct the market. Why did this happen first in the US when it did? And why did it take so long to catch up, catch on in Europe? This book by a practitioner fills that gap. From 1977 until his retirement in 2019, Gregory Worden worked in the antitrust division of the U.S. Department of Justice, most recently a senior economic counsel. A Ph.D. economist from the University of Wisconsin, he has published extensively on antitrust policy. Dr. Worden, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Can we start by discussing the origins of this book? Uh, what, What made you decide to write a history of your discipline? Well, I was privileged in a way that part of my job was reading a lot of things. And um, partly because I worked so many hours, I had time to read a lot. And the more I read, the more I wanted to read. Uh, And um, so my plan when I retired was to read all the things that I could get my hands on that I was never able to read before because I didn't have the time. But the more I, I read other things, the more I thought, well, there was much more interesting stuff to read, particularly if you go back further. It's more obscure. It's e- harder to find. Uh, but it's well worth getting a hold of. And the uh, between collecting up old books and other documents and the internet – uh, the time was right for this too. Um, I started collecting old books on antitrust maybe six years before I retired, and the amount of material that's been put up on the internet in recent years is is utterly astounding. And in law, perhaps more than other fields, I'm not sure, but I know in law, a tremendous amount has been put up. Yeah, and did you have any kind of uh... I was going to use a term like privileged access, but it, it uh, that that implies something that you, you you should be doing something you shouldn't. But uh, did you have um, access to documents or to to historical documents that you that somebody else m- might have found more difficult to to track down? Not really. Um, I poured over the old files of the Department of Justice while I was there, but remarkably little is there hmm. because. Most all the old stuff goes to the National Archives. Uh, I made several trips to the archives, um, not as rewarding as I had hoped, but I I read a lot of old Department of Justice records that are available to anybody who registers and goes through a minor security screen to get access. Um, It is not easy. It takes a long time to get a hold of materials, but anybody can do it at the National Archives just outside Washington, D.C. And um, and a lot of people do do it. They have a giant reading room and it, there's lots of people. I don't know about during the pandemic, but when I was there, there were just lots of people there doing research on various topics every single day. And they have, you know, I don't know, I don't know how many documents, but let's say a lot, a billion, let's say. It's a tremendous number of documents produced by U.S. government agencies. And um, it's their job to uh, retain all of these records. Uh, 
and uh, the, not that they're easy to find. But um, one of the things I was able to get a hold of was all the correspondence files from the Department of Justice from early in the 20th century, all of them. Uh, and uh interesting read uh the i'm sure there's lots more antitrust related files i never got a hold of uh but um i was looking for a few things in particular because of wrong information that i had read about the history and eventually tracked those documents down and uh found out that you know what I had read about the origins of the antitrust division where I worked was wrong, and so one one of the history things I wrote was the origin of the antitrust division. Uh, a small, very short law review article I published on that a few years ago, uh, and uh, I used that trip to the archives uh, to write that and other research. Uh, but um, the more I did historical research, the more I learned that there's a lot of wrong history that just somebody wrote once and it just got repeated ever since. Well, you, you do kick over a couple of statues in, in the book. Um, what, one is the idea of uh, Teddy Roosevelt as a trust buster and the other is you're not particularly kind to Louis Brandeis, but we, we, we'll, we'll come back to that. I mean, just on the writing itself, I mean, I presume that most of the writing you did during your career was a, of a pretty technical nature, whereas this book is a very, I mean, it has technical, the, the antitrust doctrine uh, chapters are, are technical, but the book itself is a, is, is a, you know, a very readable narrative history. Was that, was that a challenge for you? And it, was that something that was asked for from the publisher or, or was it something you always wanted to do when you started? Oh, it, it's what I set out to do. Um, A lot of what I wrote during my career was primarily for non-specialists. Uh, so, for instance, anything you write in litigation is written for non-specialist judges. Now, of course, they know a lot about law, but they don't know a lot about each field in law. They don't know a lot about antitrust. And so you have to bring them along. And... Uh, from the start of my career, I was explaining, you know, things that were kind of based in economics to people with no training at all in economics. Mm. So if you do a lot of this and you get fairly good at it, what you learn to do is how to write something for any intelligent reader, not one with a lot of specialized background knowledge. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's get down to some of the substance. You, you begin the book with the assertion that something like the Sherman Act was, was always going to happen eventually, but the reason it came when it did and why antitrust became antitrust was because of John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil. Can you take us through your arguments and explain the special case of the Standard Oil Trust? Sure. Uh, so... Um, John D. Rockefeller was an ambitious guy with that a lot of schooling, but I think probably quite a lot of intelligence. And he kind of stumbled into the oil business. One day somebody said, why don't we get into the oil business? And he said, oh, that's a good idea. Um, and, you know, it was new business then. And <laughs> remember for our listeners, it would be many decades before automobiles. Mm. So they did not produce gasoline. They produced what many people called illuminating oil, oil that went into lamps to light homes. Mm. So um, these guys built a refinery and, um, and he kept wanting to grow the business and did. And, had a falling out with some of his partners because he borrowed so much money to grow the business. And just 12 years, slightly less than 12 years after they started the business, they were already quite large. And 
uh, had operations in multiple states, and interstate corporations was not a thing yet. Uh, corporate law was in its infancy. Corporations were chartered by the states to do business in those states, and usually on very limited things. So they had a control problem for the business, and their in-house counsel came up with this idea of a trust. And it's a trust in the technical legal sense. Uh, Shares of corporations were placed into a trust, which was managed by a group of trustees. And those trustees then, if they had a majority of the common stock of the company in the trust, could manage the company any way they wanted. And they did. Uh, And after the trust was formed, um, the trust acquired a lot of the stock they didn't already have in some of these companies. They even started out with a minority interest in some of them. But um, they got complete control over them. And then they, they created new companies, Standard Oil of New York, Standard Oil of New Jersey, with particular functions. Standard Oil of New York was a central administrative agency for all the Standard Oil companies. And uh, this was a little bit like a cartel because these companies were not commonly owned. And, uh, but it was a little bit like a merger. These companies Mm -hmm. kind of merged together through the trust. And this became a thing. I, I was never able to verify this, but I read in one book that other companies paid a large sum of money for a copy of the trust documents forming the standard oil trust so they could emulate them. (laughs) And several did, uh, the United States had a lot of things that were called trusts that really weren't, but they had a small number of things that really were, and it emulated Standard Oil, particularly in whiskey and in sugar. Mm. Those were two of the big ones that formed not long after Standard Oil, although there weren't very many of them by the time that the Sherman Act was passed, the first U.S. national antitrust law, but um, Standard Oil engaged in what you would call sharp business practices, at least that's the way they were perceived, and got a lot of fairly negative publicity, including a lot of pieces in the New York Times criticizing Standard Oil, not always by name, but sometimes by name. And so Standard Oil became kind of the face of corporate America and particular John D. Rockefeller. That was the big corporation. And you have to remember, there weren't big corporations for this. There were pretty powerful banks or pretty powerful railroads, but there were not any large, powerful industrial corporations. That simply wasn't a thing before the late 19th century, in America at least. Um, you know, the, like the Dutch East India Company going back hundreds of years, but not an industrial corporation. Um, so in the late 19th century, we get this the second industrial revolution, the rise of these large manufacturers. But Standard Oil is the, is the one everybody knows about because they produce a household product and they're the biggest. And they grew to tremendous proportions, uh, particularly through some luck, there's always luck, and um, skillful negotiations with the railroads because the railroads transported the crude oil from the oil fields to the refineries and then transported the refined product out to where it could be consumed. So the railroads were very important. And in the beginning, there were no tank cars. They just transported oil in barrels. So it was quite expensive. Um, So the railroads were very important. And there weren't a lot of railroads to pick from for most refiners. 
Rockefeller was very lucky that there were three railroads that went to Cleveland, where his early refineries were, and he could play them off against each other. Whereas the other big refining center at the outset was in Pittsburgh. Only the Pennsylvania Railroad served Pittsburgh, so they were at a big disadvantage because they had to deal with a rail monopoly. And Rockefeller um, used that advantage, entered into uh, an arrangement with the railroads, which he alleges was never put into effect. But it got a lot of bad publicity, which probably is why it was never put into effect. Um, it, it was kind of a conspiracy of the railroads and Standard Oil against all the other refineries. Hmm. So the, the amount they had to pay for their transportation would go up a lot. And Rockefeller would get a rebate on everything they paid to ship the crude oil. Pretty clever. Um, no records apparently of how much money he collected perhaps very little mm-hmm. um, and before long the railroads lost their importance because pipelines took over as the transporter of both crude oil and refined product particularly the crude oil um, but their rockefeller planned ahead um, as soon as the first significant pipeline proved its worth by piping oil up over the Appalachian Range in Pennsylvania. Um, He decided to go all in on pipelines. And uh, before long, railroads were irrelevant to Standard Oil success. It was all about the pipelines, which um, Standard Oil either built or acquired so that they would have control. And although the pipelines are supposed to be common carriers and therefore not allowed to charge different rates to Standard Oil than to the other shippers and not allowed to favor Standard Oil over the other shippers, that was not enforceable. And Standard Oil used its control over the pipelines to maintain control over the oil industry in the United States. And so the the, the original um, regulatory uh, fight back came from from Ohio and came from the senator from Ohio. Um, although Not I, the I, senator, for, from the attorney general. Oh yeah, well, but also I was thinking of um, Sherman himself. Um, that was, yeah, that was a little later. Uh, mm. But yes, um, Sherman never mentioned Standard Oil though, um, and I've never read in. And I've got everything ever written about John Sherman that he had um, any run-ins with Standard Oil. There is a story, and it's in the book, that he was offered a bribe by Rockefeller. Um, We don't know exactly how he got rich, but he managed to, as an elected official of the United States government, to to get pretty rich. Um, He owned like a third of Northwest Washington, D.C. Um, and uh, so somehow he got money. Uh, perhaps all fair and square. We don't know. But um, he became concerned that, that the trusts were a serious problem. And I think he was completely sincere about this, although his sincerity was questioned. Um, but I've seen nothing to suggest he wasn't sincere, but I've also seen nothing to suggest any particular motivation. Uh, I think it was political more than anything else. So many things are. He just thought this was the right thing to do to get votes. And part of it was tied up with the tariff issue. So for a very long time, the Republican Party, of which John Sherman was a leading member, was the party of tariffs. They were in control of the Congress for most of the late 19th and early 20th century. And they supported high tariffs and we had high tariffs. And the high tariffs, of course, um, eliminated the power 
that any foreign competitors would have. And there is a widely held view that uh, Sherman decided that he couldn't change his view on the tariff. That was a, a basic Republican issue, high tariffs. But what he could do is mitigate the harm that the high tariff was doing to the people through antitrust law. So one of one of the leading theories, one that is most believable for what motivated antitrust law was that it was counterbalancing the harm done by the tariff. Yeah, and you also have a very interesting um, narrative of the congressional debates around the act and the, the competing claims for parenthood of the Sherman Act um, from three Georges, Edmonds, Hoare, and Vest. Did, I, I wasn't quite sure if you came to a conclusion as to which, if any of those, were the, were the real father well, of the Well, history came to a conclusion. Um, right. Uh, so the, there is a consensus that Edmonds re- wrote nearly all of the Sherman Act right. based on the minutes of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And um, th- those minutes are actually available on a, a website that somebody I know maintains. Uh, and I have read them. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, There is, there is no more reliable evidence, nor could there be any more reliable evidence than that, and so I'm, I, and I'm fairly convinced that that is what happened. Um, m- much of the history is undisputed. Sherman wrote a bill, and that bill was debated, and there was a lot of opposition to that bill, and Sherman did not want the bill to go to the Senate Judiciary Committee because he was. Well, apparently, then there's good reason to believe it's because he did not think it would ever come back from the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, He was chairman of the Finance Committee, and he got his bill originally sent to the Senate Finance Committee, which reported it back favorably. And in the debates... There were motions several times to send the bill to the Judiciary Committee. And the first two times it was defeated. The third time it was sent back to the Judiciary Committee. And um, the historians say, I think with good reason, that it was expected that would be the end, that it, mm-hmm. it would never come back to the floor. But it did very fast. Uh the Senate Judiciary Committee had a couple of meetings. They worked on this. They kicked around some ideas. And um, Edmonds dictated the language of most of the bill to a secretary. I'm, I'm sure it was a man because they, they were all men back then. Hmm. And uh, there are other little bits in the bill written by other people, according to the evidence. Um, including one very short clause uh, written by the guy who defended Andrew Johnson in his impeachment trial, a senator from New York. Uh, so it, it really looks like Edmonds did write the bill. But um, Sherman obviously had his enemies, and he died before any of these other guys who were involved in this. And after he died, um, a lot of not very nice things were said about him and his parentage of the Sherman Act. And the interesting episode, which um, was fairly well documented, but in fairly obscure places, so I was not familiar with it until I started doing the research, is that senator from Ohio, Four Acre, who, by the way, was in the pocket of Standard Oil and was investigated by the Senate for it, uh, gave a speech on the Ohio Centennial, 1903, 
in the first state capital of Ohio. Uh, and he said nice things about John Sherman um, and said that he was responsible for the Sherman Act. And I don't think he used the word wrote, but um, gave Sherman credit. And he gets this letter saying, what do you mean, John Sherman, responsible for the Sherman Act? He had nothing to do with the Sherman Act. And um, and so he assigns a staffer who is one of the most obscure figures you can imagine. There's only like three hits on the Internet for this guy <laughs> and all connected to his congressional staff work uh, to f- sort all this out. So he collects up everything that can be collected up, the minutes of the Judiciary Committee, a, a whole lot of correspondence. Of course, Sherman is gone. Can't talk to him, but uh, all this gets put together in the hardest book in the world to find. I don't think there are any copies outside the Library of Congress. Hmm. So that is the only thing that I had slightly privileged access to. (laughs) Now, I say slightly privileged because anybody could go into that library pre-COVID and get that book. Couldn't take it out but you could get Mm -hmm. that book and read it. Um, While still at the Department of Justice, I was able to borrow the book. Right. (laughs) Well, you described the first decade of the act as as a disappointment to antitrust enthusiasts. Um, And then there's this massive consolidation wave in 1899 that seems to change the political weather. And then Roosevelt comes in. And you, as I said earlier, you make this point about Roosevelt being or his reputation as a trustbuster being being more myth than reality. So, could you could you walk us through that? Sure. Um, it it kind of comes as a shock uh, to people at how small the Department of Justice was in the late nineteenth century. Yeah, but. Everybody in the Department of Justice would have fit in my living room easily. Everybody, everybody in Washington, part of the Department of Justice. Um, it would have been a tight squeeze, but you could have got all the people from the U.S. Attorney's offices in here too, because there weren't so many of them. And people were smaller. Uh, <laughs> yes, slightly. <laughs> Although, uh, if we come to Taft, he was pretty large. Um, <laughs> so th- they did not have resources. Uh, but they brought some cases. Um, but the, the the statute was drafted in fairly obscure language. And judges kind of had to feel their way through what this meant. And this was a very much a common law process. And they imputed meaning to these words that wasn't necessarily correct. But, you know, they had to do something. They did, The words were not self-explanatory. And they were pretty reluctant to find anybody guilty of a violation of the law. So there were a lot of failed cases for that reason. And the other big problem, and this was a well-known problem when they wrote the Sherman Act, was that Congress's power over commerce was very limited, very limited. It was not clear what industries the Sherman Act would apply to other than the railroads and what was then called the coasting trade, which was shipping along the coast of the United States. Those industries were clearly engaged in interstate commerce, and interstate commerce was what Congress had the power to regulate under the Constitution. It wasn't so clear what else was interstate commerce, and the courts defined it very narrowly in Sherman Act cases. A a Supreme Court case illustrated the problem as vividly as possible. Um, A lot of your listeners won't realize, but Kansas City is really two cities because it straddles the state line between Kansas and Missouri. And in the late 19th century, there were stockyards there right on the state line. The cows would walk back and forth across the state line. Those were interstate cows. But when the government brought a case involving the Kansas City stock cards, 
stockyards, excuse me, the Supreme Court ruled that it was not engaged in interstate commerce. And uh, the, the government had the same problem when it attacked the Sugar Trust in the E.C. Knight case. So the government had some big losses for a variety of reasons, some quirky reasons that are in the book, and not a lot of resources. So um, the record for the first 10 or so years is, is really quite dismal. Give Roosevelt credit. More cases were brought under him than under his predecessors, and his attorney general did get money out of Congress for antitrust. Uh, a half a million dollars, March of 1903, the first appropriation for antitrust enforcement. And that was good for more than three years. And the Standard Oil case and the American Tobacco case were both put together and filed uh, with those resources. But um, Roosevelt was a regulator. He wanted him, the president, to have the power to do what needed to be done, whatever that might be. And it probably wasn't to dismember the trusts, to rein them in where required. And he was never clear about how he wanted to do that. But he was very clear that he wanted the power. He didn't want some government agency to have the power. He wanted the president to have some power. Um, antitrust actually stepped up when Taft took over as president um, George Wickersham, the last of the great mustaches. Uh, you just got to go online and see a picture of George Wickersham. Uh, but that was the era. Taft had a big mustache. That was the era of the great mustache. And uh, Wickersham's was the best. That's why he was the attorney general. And he was very aggressive in forcing the antitrust laws. And he was the one who was in charge of the Standard Oil and American Tobacco cases when they came to the Supreme Court. And he personally argued, although not just him, because they had marathon week-long arguments back then, and a team of three different people argued for the government. Uh, and But um, there were a lot of a wave of mergers, as you mentioned before, starting in 1899 or peaking in 1899, uh, but continuing thereafter. And... Um, what is the most remarkable thing is that when Standard Oil and American Tobacco were broken up in 1911, people were unhappy. Not that they didn't want them to be broken up, but they didn't think that was enough. And in some ways it wasn't because it wasn't really possible to construct competition. But a, a fairly concerted effort was made to do so. Um, so th that's hard to fault. But it it was just a political football. Uh, so Roosevelt and others said, oh, the executive should have been put in jail. But they weren't indicted. Roosevelt was president when the case was brought. He didn't seek indictments. There was no possibility of putting these guys in jail in 1911. But Taft is pilloried for not putting these guys in jail. It's That's how politics works. The other thing that has got people exercised in 1912 is that in the Standard Oil decision, Chief Justice White declares that a rule of reason governs cases under the Sherman Act. And as far as I'm concerned, and as far as most people at the time were concerned, he just made that up. And it it is a horrible opinion. It is an unreadable opinion. And he was capable of doing so much better and did earlier in his career, but he, he was busy and uh, obviously didn't put enough time into it. Um, but he also made some unintelligible arguments and some wrong arguments, but he had always believed that the Sherman Act didn't set down an absolute rule banning anything. It was always a question of reasonableness. And that is a notion that came from the common law. And White ruled in Standard Oil that all the Sherman Act did essentially was to codify the common law, which is way off the mark and too complicated to explain on this conversation. But the idea of reasonableness certainly was there in the common law. 
in the late 19th century when the Sherman Act was passed. And uh, the, the cases are, are interesting and worth reading. Um, one of the things I learned about in writing my, the book was the law lords, an obsolete concept in the UK now, but in, in the olden days, um, the last court was the law lords, and they were called lords because they were members of the House of Lords. You got made a lord when you were appointed to this particular kind of judgeship, and they were the court of last resort, and they decided some of these important cases. And um, although they s- sat in in groups of five or six, um, they didn't have an opinion of the court. Each lord would say his own opinion about the subject. And uh, so go back and read these cases. They're very interesting. You have this idea of reasonableness, but it's reasonableness about a different thing, Um, not about cartels. They were not cartel cases. And in one of the landmark Sherman Act cases from 1898, uh, Taft, sitting as an appeals court judge in his hometown of Cincinnati, Ohio, which is also my hometown, um, wrote correctly that these old cases, including a bunch of U.S. state cases, applied this reasonableness notion in a variety of circumstances, but not to cartels. That those were were never subject to this reasonableness standard, and the Sherman Act didn't change that. And but it kind of looked like in Standard Oil that the Supreme Court was rejecting that. But it clarified in later decisions. No, no, that's not quite what we meant. Cartels are still per se illegal. So that's one variation on the theme of the rule of reason. It's now understood. Um, so understanding a lot of the nuance in law requires going back and not just 100, 130 years, but in some cases to the 18th century, uh, because all of these old decisions cite older decisions, and you got to go read them. And now you can without getting up out of your chair. Uh, the internet has changed the world. The research that would have taken me five years, 50 years ago, um, took me five months because of the internet. (laughs) Well, and we've discussed the politics and and lawmaking uh, history, but you have a long section on the intellectual stream that was going on, the economic stroke, legal intellectual stream going on in the background, starting with John Bates Clark, ending with the Chicago School. And this very interesting idea that Clark introduced of potential competition, which, as you say later in the book, is something that arises with the tech giants today. Um, can you explain this concept and, and the development of Clark's thinking? Uh, sure. Um, first, it should be said that um, Clark latched on to this idea. He did not invent it. Hmm. Um, the a guy na- named Franklin Giddings, um, who is considered one of the founders of sociology, but also did some work in economics, wrote it, an article that um, John Bates Clark thought a lot of. And John Bates Clark was kind of the superstar in economics in the late 19th century. And he... he decided to publish both in academic journals and in the popular media. People read more back then because there was nothing to watch or listen to, no radio, no television. So um, people read a lot. And John Bates Clark um, got interested in the trust issue. Uh, it It was just a side topic that he would comment on in articles that were about something else initially. But um, he initially 
completely bought into this idea of potential competition, which in the limit says that no one can exercise monopoly power to any significant degree, because as soon as you try to do that, new competition will come into the market and there goes your monopoly. Uh, Now, in the 1980s, uh, that was taken one step further with the argument in mathematical form that uh, you wouldn't raise your price in the first place because you you can't charge high prices for any significant length of time, so you wouldn't bother. Now, it turns out that argument is sensitive to assumptions on exactly how this game is played and the timing and all this other stuff. So um, that is something I think most people think was a vast overstatement of the power of the principle. But in the late 19th, early 20th century, it was believed to be a powerful force. And initially, John Bates Clark said, you don't have to worry about the trusts. They're just never going to be able to exercise monopoly power. And this was widely believed. Um, the I quote a couple of things in the book, the one of which that I found most astounding was the acceptance speech for the nomination for president of William Howard Taft has a paragraph in it that clearly articulates this potential competition theory. Uh, It's absolutely clear it came from John Bates Clark, who published articles and books, and, um, and that's how Taft would have come to know about this. Hmm. Uh, Roosevelt's attorney general had articulated this idea um, years earlier in a response to an inquiry from Congress. Um, Philander C. Knox, great name, Philander. <laughs> uh, and so it, it was very widely believed, but um, eventually Clark learned more about the tactics of the trusts these very aggressive tactics to keep new competitors down. And he started to write about that. And each new article would be slightly different, a lot of overlap, but slightly different and uh, slightly different takes, slightly different description of the tactics. One article introduced a new one that he hadn't mentioned before, but it it, it was things that, that would be familiar, like aggressively cutting price. So Mm. when somebody threatens to take your business away, what do you do? Well, you not only cut price, but you cut price below perhaps this other guy's cost. And of course, it was controversial whether Standard Oil in particular ever did that. It's unresolved by the historians who looked at the the company's records. Um, What Standard Oil said that it did, although not publicly, is cut price to cost. And if they cut price to cost, nobody can compete with them because their cost was the lowest. They were an efficient company, uh, as many of the trusts were. Uh, That's not the only way they got big and strong and powerful, but it was one of the ways. And so John Bates Clark came to realize that we do need a law that regulates the exclusionary conduct of large companies. And we had one. It was called the Sherman Act. And because it was so spectacularly unsuccessful, he completely ignored it until fairly late in his career um, when he gave it some credit. But he was one of the people who advocated new antitrust legislation in uh starting around 1910 that eventually was passed in 1914 with the Clayton Act and the Federal Trade Commission Act and he testified in one of the hearings and su- submitted a written statement in another one he was getting pretty old by then uh but he supported the legislation and 
he is credited by one economic historian, at least, and I think this is accurate, as being a, a significant impetus for the legislation because mm-hmm. his writings describe the kind of practices that the Clayton Act did, in fact, prohibit, uh, or at least um, was aimed at prohibiting. It was perhaps not completely successful. But uh, the specific legislation aimed at exclusionary conduct is what John Bates Clark came to believe was necessary to make potential competition work. If you can keep the large incumbents from crushing the nascent rivals, then the power of potential competition will be strong. And uh, and although he never quite said this, um, maybe even believed you did not have to have a law against cartels. Well, your your section on, um, as I promised earlier, your section on Brandeis is, is I think you could say, is, is a bit less kind. Uh, you say this is a quote: Brandeis may have had the greatest legal mind in the United States the, the United States ever produced, but he did not use it to serve competitional consumers. Brandeis was called the people's lawyer, but he did not advocate for the people's interest in competition. Now, this this is especially apt at the moment <clears throat> since there's a new brandeis movement as you as you also discuss in the book could you explain your opinion on brandeis sure. and 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 on the new movement actually sure well let me first say that um and it this is in the book but uh not emphasized uh the Brandeis philosophy that the new Brandeisians are picking up on is his anti-big business philosophy. He was anti-big business to the core, mm-hmm. maybe not when he was young, probably not when he was young, and he represented some big corporations. But he became very much anti-big business and pro-small business. He was the champion of the small businessman, to be sure. But that's where it stopped it it wasn't a question of of promoting competition he did not want the small businessman to face competition he wanted him to thrive how do you thrive well by stamping out competition hmm. so um he, he never associated himself with any antitrust idea of protecting the competitive process. He associated himself with protecting the small businessman. Um, one of his relatively early writings is on resale price maintenance, which uh, fairly early on, the Supreme Court more or less, I lean toward less, said was per se illegal. The decision was interpreted as saying that it Resale price maintenance per se illegal, but it doesn't quite say that. But in any event, that was the upshot of the decision in the Dr. Miles case. And Brandeis wrote several pieces criticizing the Dr. Miles case, gave some good reasons and some bad reasons why resale price maintenance was good for small business. And that's what all he cared about. There's nothing in there about whether it's good or bad for consumers. That's not his concern. And it's the same thing with cartels. He wrote one important dissenting opinion as a Supreme Court justice in a cartel case. And I'd have to say that you have to use the, the cartel label quite liberally to put this in that box, but it is usually put in that box. Um, it's not literal price fixing, but um, trade association of a large number of companies had uh, data collection, data dissemination, frequent meetings, and the government alleged and a majority of the Supreme Court found that the purpose and effect of this was to keep up prices. And Brandeis' thinking was, well, that's really not such a bad thing, is it? Um these guys are just trying to do what's best for their business and bring some order to the chaos of the marketplace. And 
I just don't see how the law stops them from doing that. Mm. Uh, and it, it was a simple thing to him. The businesses involved in this case were not the standard oils of the world. They were fairly small by corporate standards. There were a lot of them. And if they needed to get together and talk about prices in order to bring some order to the chaos of the marketplace, then there's certainly nothing wrong with that. Hmm. Had this been three giant companies getting together, he probably would have had a completely different view. But he, he never sat on a case that involved that. Uh, and uh, some of his most famous writings are on non-antitrust cases that it did involve government regulation. And um, one case in particular, out of Oklahoma, there was a state law that made it difficult to get into the ice business. You had to have a certificate from the state in order to open a new ice company. And some new business started up without the necessary approvals. And of course, um, the incumbent business that it competed against uh, brought a suit saying that uh, they can't do this. Um, it's against the state law. And it, apparently it was. The question that came to the Supreme Court was whether that state law was constitutional. And Brandeis was the biggest defender of states' rights to ever sit on the Supreme Court. Uh, because he generally thought that states would regulate wisely and that um, if they decided in this particular case that competition was a bad thing and that it shouldn't be allowed, then who are we to second-guess that? Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, whereas a majority of the court not only thought competition was a good thing, but that it was kind of a natural right to mm. compete, one that in this particular case, they, the state was not entitled in this particular set of circumstances to impinge upon. Uh, Brandeis would have none of that. Um, he didn't want to constrain state regulators, although he was perfectly willing to constrain the federal government as a regulator. Uh, and the fact that the, that the regulations served no purpose but to eliminate competition did not in any way make him think it was a bad regulation. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he's, he's not a friend of competition. He's a friend of small business. Mm. He um, was uh, against uh, great wealth, although – he, he had a fair amount of it, although he, he gave a lot away. Um, but he was somewhat embarrassed that he had amassed a significant amount of wealth as a lawyer. He's very successful as a <laughs> private practitioner. Uh, but it, it was a, a very populist political view that favored not the consumer, but the small businessman. Yeah. And I don't think the new Brandeisians completely agree with Brandeis on that, but they are completely on the same page as being against big business. Right. Well, I'm, I mean, coming back to big business, it's, it's, not, it's not your final chapter, but the, the last but one. Um, re reading about the foundations of antitrust, you can't help but make comparisons today with the with the tech giants, the, the the rapid their rapid emergence, the their acquisition of startups, their internal competition between rival applications and and market power, and you you bookend a thorough discussion of these issues. Do, is this what really struck me was it, is this an area you think where economics has a much stronger role to play um, because you're trying to predict behaviour. Um, you're protecting competition more than competitors. And do you think the Europeans have a distinctive approach in this area compared to the US? Well, 
I would, I'd certainly say economics plays a role, but um, perhaps not as big a role as you were thinking. Uh, economics helps you understand bits and pieces of this puzzle, but not really the whole puzzle. It's too big and complicated, and um, it strains our tools in economics. Mm-hmm. So while we can look at it various angles saying, well, if you think about it this way, then then you got to look at this and this and this goes like this. And, uh, and all that's very helpful. Uh, it doesn't really give you the right answer with any degree of confidence on what's the best public policy. Uh, and a lot of these things come back to what do you believe? Hmm. If you put a lot of weight on this or that, then you come to particular conclusions. Uh, From my perspective, most of the people who want a lot of regulation are confident that regulating the tech giants will not in any way slow down their efforts to innovate and provide new and wonderful things. And I'm completely convinced that they're wrong. Hmm. people do all these great things to make money if you make it hard or impossible to make money then capital does not flow into these enterprises Uh, so i think that the europeans are about to over-regulate the tech industry to death Uh, maybe they'll ease up and it's very hard to tell exactly where they're going at this point. Um, the, the idea seems just to give more and more power to the administrative state, which the administrative state will then undoubtedly use wisely, um, which most Americans find humorous. Um, Europeans trust the government. Americans don't. It goes back quite a ways. Uh, and it, that is not the origin of the European Union. That came later. Uh, it's it's quite amazing. I, I say from time to time that Europeans are all socialists. It is only a slight exaggeration. Uh, the vast majority of Europeans have a great faith in the ability of the government to make things better, whereas the vast majority of Americans are seriously doubtful mm-hmm. that the government can or would make things better. And what economists have typically said, although not a majority of European economists, is that the government doesn't have the wisdom to make things better. It's too hard a problem to know what the right answer is. And that, you know, it's rolling the dice. If you're going to decide what's best for the, the people by regulating the tech giants, then you can fail spectacularly and you don't get a do-over. Mm. And maybe you should go really slow. Uh, and Maybe they will. Um, the tech giants are scary in exactly the same way that the giant industrial companies were scary in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, it's remarkable how much it is the same. And it could also be said that the the giants of the late 19th early 20th century did a lot of good they did uh they absolutely did there's no doubt about that they brought efficient production methods to a large scale and lowered prices for consumers now maybe not nearly as much as they would have if there was more competition of course um and maybe they went out of their way to suppress competition Hmm. i haven't talk much about American tobacco, but um, American tobacco yeah, is a fairly well, that, simple. That was a shocking chapter. Yeah. Fairly <laughs> simple story. Yeah. <laughs> um, I never got an exact count, but it looks like they bought um, hundreds of companies and shut them down. And the Whiskey mm. Trust, too, shut down th- over 300 distilleries by one count. Um, but um, American tobacco was a little more thorough than um, the, the whiskey trust and making sure that the, the factories were actually uh, uh, raised to the ground so that they couldn't go back into production. Um, and, and that worked fairly well. Uh, 
the whiskey trust spent all of its money shutting down other distilleries. And so they didn't make a profit, in fact. Hmm. Um, but American Tobacco did. But back to the tech giants. Um, I, I don't know why the European Commission is picking on Google, which has brought more value to more people than any other corporation in the history of the world. Everybody gets something free from Google almost every day. Um, why do you want to put that at risk? And the idea that somebody will, because of regulation, be able to threaten Google's search monopoly is, to my thinking, absurd. If somebody comes up with a much better idea, it will catch on. But it will have to be a much better idea. And that's how tech competition has worked for a very long time. If somebody can come up with a much much better idea, they probably won't get squashed. They might. It is a risk. You need to worry about that. But um, there's a good chance they'll find a customer base. They'll find venture capitalist investors, particularly in the United States. Mm -hmm. And one of the fun things in my reading was there's talk about how venture capital will support entry in 1912, uh, it by Taft, in fact. Uh, mm -hmm. So um, everything that's old is new again in competition law. Uh, but it's a little more complicated now than it used to be. At least it seems so. I guess it seemed complicated 100 years ago. <laughs> But it, it definitely is complicated because there's so much going on in, in a lot of these companies. And they're doing so many things to make money, many of which bring great value to consumers. Some of them maybe don't. But they're, they're part of an ecosystem which, uh, if government chooses to upset, they'll get something new and different. And we don't know what it's going to be. We don't know that it's going to be better. It could be, but we have no way of knowing that. And the faith that it will necessarily be better is weird to me. You, there's no way of, of knowing. We have something pretty good. It's not perfect. So let's change it. Ah. <laughs> um, uh, you better be very careful and go very slow. And it's the same with, with redoing competition law. There's a lot of talk about that. I don't write about this in my book. But um, a major redo of competition law is one of the worst ideas that any human beings ever had. <laughs> because we've been at it for 130 years and we haven't got it figured out. And Anybody who wants to start over from scratch needs to read 130 years of case law hmm. and see how painstakingly they've been trying to figure it out. You can't just start over. It will be just like it was the first time. Maybe they'll go five times as fast, 10 times as fast, but um, they won't even begin to have it figured out in my lifetime. Well, um, to finish off, um, since this is a podcast for book lovers, I'd like to ask my guests to recommend a book or two. Um, do you have something to recommend? Yes. I'm going to recommend something that um, will be hard to get an actual copy of, but not impossible to read online because there's a, a website called the Hathi Trust, and all these books that are out of copyright are available for reading, not downloading. And I'm going to start off by recommending what could be considered the first book on antitrust. The title is Trusts, The Recent Combinations in Trade, Their Character, Legality, and Mode of Organization, and the Rights, Duties, Liabilities of Their Managers and Certificate Holders by William W. Cook, published in 1888. Hmm. Um, I happen to have in my hand, as I speak, 
the copy that Mr. Cook presented to his brother, <laughs> which I'm quite sure his brother never read. So it's in very good condition. <laughs> um, I also have, now that I'm picking up in my other hand, the second edition of this book published in the same year, paperback with um, fake alligator paper cover. The second edition of the book reproduces the documents that formed the Standard Oil and Sugar Trusts. This is the first wide circulation of these documents that were kept secret initially. And uh, according to journalist Ida Tarbell, it is this very book, the second edition of Cook's Trusts, that the Attorney General of Ohio picked up in a bookstore and uh, read and decided that he needed to sue Standard Oil, and um, he lost. But it was the beginning of a lot of lawsuits against Standard Oil. Uh, the, the price, by the way, is marked on the cover, 50 cents. Um, <laughs> But I think you'll be hard-pressed to get it for under $100 if you can get it at all. Uh, But fortunately, like I said, you can read it online. Uh, I I love reading these old books that are very obscure Hmm. because it's the only way to see how people were thinking at the time. And there's been so much idiotic speculation about what people were trying to do in writing the Sherman Act which is completely unjustified because you you can't tell from the legislative history or anything those people wrote or said at the time. Hmm. But if you read the newspapers and you read the books like that and the the periodicals, you get some feel for what people were thinking. And it's the only window that you have into it. Fascinating. Well, uh, today I have been talking to Gregory Worden about the Foundations of Antitrust, published by Carolina Academic Press. Uh, Dr. Worden, thank you very much for coming on. Oh, you're welcome.